So we have been in a series called Let's Go, which has been in the book of Acts. And a few of us have shared this in the past few weeks, but this has actually been a three-year series. We have not been in the book of Acts for three years, but for three years, we have been traveling on and off in this journey, taking detours to look at hospitality, taking detours to talk about Advent, all the different things. We have been in the book of Acts, though, and this is the final part of that journey. Now, as much as we've been in it the last few years, the truth is not all of us have been here for all the series. Our family's one of those, but some of us have, so you might remember some of the series pieces, but I still think it's good to remind us about the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. It comes right after the Gospels. The Gospels are the story of Jesus told from four different points of view, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts, in particular, goes and travels through what it looks like in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The book of Acts was written by Luke, the same author as the book of Luke. One of the things I found really interesting, I've I've known Luke was a doctor, but did you know that he actually had a traveling medical practice with Paul? So when he traveled with Paul, he was one of Paul's companions, so he was like a medical missionary sharing the gospel. Isn't that cool? I never knew that before. So he did that. It wasn't like he used to be a doctor. He actually helped fund their missionary journeys by being a doctor. He was a medical missionary. And finally, the book of Acts is our ability as new believers to see what it means to live a life post-Christ. It's the first set of testimonies we have. I feel so small behind this thing. Do I look really small? Anyways. um, Okay, so... I hope so. (laughs) With all that said, we are in this Let's Go series, and I think Eugene Peterson says it best, because Let's Go was a very specific phrase that was chosen for this specific series in this portion of the book of Acts. I'm going to read a part of it, and then there will be a part that goes onto the screens. The first part of this is from the message version, and it says, the story of Jesus is so impressive. God among us, God speaking a language we understand, God acting in ways that heal and help and save us. Be impressed as the spectacular dimensions of this story slowly or suddenly dawn upon us, we could easily become enthusiastic spectators and then let it go at that. Become admirers of Jesus. Generous with our oohs and ahs, and in our better moments, maybe inspired to imitate him. And this is the slide. But it's Luke's task to prevent that. To prevent us from becoming mere spectators of Jesus, fans of the message, Luke alone continues the story as the apostles and disciples live it out into the next generation. The remarkable thing is that it continues to be essentially the same story. The story of Jesus doesn't end with Jesus. It continues in the lives of those who believe in him. The supernatural doesn't stop with Jesus. Luke makes it clear these Christians he wrote about were no more spectators of Jesus than Jesus was a spectator of God. Man, that's a good phrase, isn't that? I'm going to read it one more time. Luke makes it clear that these Christians he wrote about were no more spectators of Jesus than Jesus was a spectator of God. They are in on the action of God. 
God acting in them, God living in them. Amen? I love this description because the truth is I can often get into a funk or passivity in my faith journey. And I can allow my faith to become dull. But this book tells us to let's go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is story after story after story of that. Okay, that was a long intro. Let's get to the passage, right? So last week, Pastor Andrew left off reading at this moment. I'm going to break it up into two sections. We're going to talk about the first section in just a little bit after I read the passage, and then we'll get into the last portion. But here is that first section, Acts 17, 16 through 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas in our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians, the foreigners who lived there, spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening about the latest ideas. So if you remember from last week, Paul ended up being in Athens. That's where this takes place. He's in Athens. And the reason for that was because the Bereans, the Jewish leaders, were very much trying to stir things up. They wanted Paul kicked out. They wanted Paul silenced. So they were trying to make things as hard as possible. The religious leaders, the very religious people were doing that. But then you had the Berean believers that started to catch this new tide of faith that the Lord was inspiring and speaking through Paul. And they said, Paul, to save yourself, we're sending you to Athens. So he goes to Athens. He leaves behind Silas and Timothy so that they can stay there and preach and share the love of Christ there. But then Paul encourages them that eventually when you are done here, when you feel the Lord has told you enough's enough, then come and meet me in Athens. Paul while reading this passage, if you notice, took advantage of that moment. He was in the marketplace. He was in the synagogues. He was telling people about Jesus, and they were interested. It was a different thought process than they were used to. They were used to all gathering around and sharing their best ideas. They were philosophers because Athens was the headquarters for philosophy at the time, and philosophers of all different thought process would come and meet there. Philosophy, in particular, is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. Woo! I took a philosophy class. We're just lucky I got a degree. Okay. There were two very specific groups of philosophers in that region that made it hard for 
Paul. And they talk about it in the passage. The Epicureans and the Stoics. I'm going to read this. Because the Epicureans believed that seeking happiness or pleasure was the goal of life, and the Stoics suppressed feelings, desires, and pleasure in order to promote thinking and living in harmony with nature and reason. So think about that. When we say someone has a Stoic impression or expression, they're very what? Exactly. Good job. No, I'm joking. I'm just joking. That wasn't supposed to be part of it. But they're very, their expression doesn't show a lot of emotion. So they're very suppressed. Both groups thought that Paul was uneducated and that his beliefs were not fully thought out. So both groups, as they were speaking about Paul, were convinced that Paul's thought process was based on a bunch of people's other, other people's thought processes and that then he told their thought process. So they were convinced he had no idea. But together, the opposing groups brought Paul to the Oropagus, which was the council of philosophers, in hopes that Paul would be asked to leave. Let's read again. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and perhaps find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this, to everyone, by raising him from the dead. For the rest of our time today, we're going to unpack that part of the passage. I think one of the things that sticks out to me is that Paul is not intimidated. Very, from the beginning, he is ready. And he doesn't look at the Epicureans and Stoics bringing him before the council of philosophers as a sentence or as some kind of legal trouble. There's part of me that wonders if Paul, okay, this is for you, Mike Hawkins, and his best Mike Hawkins spirit voice is like, let's go, and is ready. Is, did I do okay? Okay, good. Okay. I almost was going to have Mike do it, and then we all practice, but okay, I was like, we'll just go this way. Um, but in his spirit, if his spirit was saying that actually, and he's like, great, 
I have an audience of very influential people, and I'm going to tell them about the one who saved me. So instead of Paul being brought to trial, Paul thinks of it as an appointment from God. Although Paul may not be a formal philosopher, he knew how to speak the language. And I think that's also something really interesting in this passage. So some of you know this. I a little bit have an issue with Paul because more often than not, Paul comes across to me very arrogant in scripture. I think Paul comes across oftentimes as a know-it-all. Paul has no problem telling people how it is. And all I want in the whole time of Paul is that he will just be Iowa nice. If he could just walk into a situation and like compliment people and talk to them and then maybe sneak in the gospel, man, that would make me feel so much better. But more often than not, Paul will walk in, and specifically with councils or heads of groups, and he's going to tell them. And they're not going to like to hear it, which often leads him to jail. And if he was just Iowa nice, he could have probably stayed a little longer, maybe shared a meal with them. But more often than not, he goes about it the other way. But this time, he does do something different. Paul speaks their language. And because he knows how to articulate and ask questions and bring awareness, he has a different favor. I love that because Paul really took time to understand. Because Paul wasn't always a Christian. And Paul had very similar questions. So he allowed his own experience to step in to have a conversation, and to engage the, the council of philosophers. I think it's so cool. We don't see that often with Paul. Trust me, we don't see it often with Paul. So for me, I'm like, whoa, Paul. I mean, I was, I was with some of my family members. I was like, Paul did it this time. I just can't believe it. He did it. And I was so proud of him. Not that it matters what I think, but it was a little Iowa nice, and it made me really happy inside. So anyways, Paul is who he is, and he allows God to use that. Now, this passage also brings something else very made known. And he, Paul begins his conversation with idols. And he talks to them through the lens of idols because he notices them. So he specifically calls out an idol that they have that says, to an unknown God. I wanted to research what that meant because it's such an interesting idol. What would that even look like? What would that even be? All the other idols had very specific things. The people of Athens had very specific idols for very specific things in their life. Whether it is they wanted babies, whether it was for their crops, whether it was for their family, whether it was you fill in the blank, they had an idol for everything. But this was the all-encompassing idol. This was the idol that maybe they forgot to actually construct a different idol. So the unknown God was in hopes that they could receive the blessings if they forgot, but also in fear if they had forgotten that they won't get punished. So they constructed this idol. And Paul goes right there and says, hold on, but you have, and there is someone that knows you deeply. And he's not someone to fear. And he's someone that cares and he's someone that wants relationship with you. 
And he's someone that's going to give you all the blessings. It might not be easy, but there is someone there. So Paul talks about this idol, and then that begins to create curiosity in them. They want to have more conversation. They want to understand, well, who is this person you're talking about? It's so different than all the other things we've ever heard of before. I think for us, idol worship can be hard to understand. I think for us, it's because we don't speak the language. So when I was in college, one of my courses I had to take was called Missions and Evangelism, and we needed to read a book called Peace Child. And it's this book, I have a picture of it. This isn't the, this is like the new version of what the book looks like. But the whole premise of the book was to talk and begin to talk about how do you relate to people within their culture. And Peace Child was about this man named Don Richardson who went into a very primitive tribe to share the gospel. And he lived there for years. And he shared life with them. He ate meals with them. He participated in their cultural things. He planted crops. He helped them medically. He did so much. But whenever he'd share the gospel, they had no idea what that meant, and they wanted nothing to do with it. Well, the longer he lived with them, the more that he became more aware of what was happening. And in one of the ceremonies he attended, it was called the Peace Child. And it was when two tribes, very different tribes, came together and exchanged one child with each other. It was a peace offering, an alliance. That what it meant was they were going to give each other a child, and now they, they expected that the other tribe would no longer attack the tribe that that child went to, and vice versa, because now they had a piece of each other within them. That meant something. Well, Don talked about that the next time he shared the gospel, that Jesus was the peace child offering we needed. And the gospel became understandable to them. Don spoke their language. Although they had idols, although they were worshiping not the one true God, he spoke a language that brought attention to the one true God. Like I said, I think idol worship is hard for, un for us to understand. We aren't in a primitive tribe. We probably have never seen an actual physical idol before. We probably haven't constructed anything out of gold, silver, or stone. But maybe this video will help us understand it a little bit more. Let's take a look. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols. And they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They, they made sacrifices to their idols. But they had built these enormous temples to worship their idols. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try it again. All 
I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshippers of idols. And they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. First, I think that ending is like the weirdest. Then it goes, -na -na -na. it's like this really dramatic moment. Okay. Every time I see that part, I'm like, oh, just cut it there. Um, anyways, but I've always appreciated this video because I think it has allowed me to understand idols a little differently. Now, I am not a huge sports person. I did play a lot of sports growing up. It is a joke between Mike and I that my family is a White Sox fan. I have no idea still to this moment how he officially got in other than we love each other a lot because he's a Cubs fan and somehow he's in our family. Still no clue, no clue. But other than that, and that's not even a big thing, couldn't tell you how the White Sox are doing. Yep, that's it. Um, but for me, sports have never been a thing. And the truth is, movie stars have never been a thing. Music has. About a few years ago, I was uh, speaking with a group of students, and we were talking actually in a series about idols, and we were looking at very different things. And one night, I decided to declare to everyone that I, and this was a true thing, I uh, really love rap music. You can judge me if you don't, I'm sorry. But I really love it. So much so that at different points in my life, I wanted to be like the first Christian female rap artist. Um, okay, I'm glad you all agree. That's great. Um, so I wanted to do that too. And, but I really felt and began to notice that whenever I would listen to rap music in particular, that my attitude would change and how I'd interact with people, and the things I wanted changed. And I said to a group of students, I have really felt this intention that one of the things I'm going to be laying down and the intention of God's heart for me is that I need to give that up. And so when I leave here, this is what I literally said, when I leave here tonight, I am going home and deleting all the rap music from my phone. And, and I said, hold me accountable. When you see me next, I need you to tell me. Well, I left, and I was like, the truth, I don't know how many students are actually going to ask me that question. And I'm at home, and I start scrolling through my rap music, and I literally felt this voice say to me, it's not that bad. It really doesn't have that kind of influence on you. And I sat there for a second, and I was like, hmm, maybe. I mean, I don't listen to it all the time. But then immediately, I was like, nope, I know where that is. And I started deleting it right away. Now, that's one kind of idol, right? Like, it didn't really have, I wasn't worshiping rap music, but it had an influence on me. Well, this week, after listening to Andrew and Camille speak, they invited us into this time of examining. And they really brought an awareness of how often do we go, like the Bereans, and read scripture and examine scripture and want to ask all the questions. 
Now, I actually think that's a really biblical practice. I think Jesus himself, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, will invite us into questioning because he says, you know, you heard it this way, but let me tell you a new way. So I think there is a piece where the Lord invites us in. But there was this phrase that both Andrew and Camille said that said, but how often these days do you let scripture examine you? Yeah. I will sit in front of the Lord and say, Lord, have full access. But then when I read scripture, I'm always reading it through this lens of like, I have a question about this. I have a question about that. I have a question about this. Instead of opening the word of God and saying, Jesus, show me who I am in light of your word. So I'm at that place early on in the week. Literally Sunday morning, I'm here. And as I'm in that place Sunday morning, I have this vision of Jesus walking into the worship center and he says, I see you all are really religious. You worship a lot of idols. And I didn't know what to do with that. Because immediately in my mind, the rest of the week, until about Wednesday, I kept going through different things in my head. Well, I don't I don't have a sports team. I don't have a musician. Like, I'm, I haven't constructed anything. The truth, I don't play sports anymore. So the truth is, I'm not actually even good at that anymore. Like, there's not real idols, Lord. And then he started to say to me, but Allie, what have you been obsessing about all week? And for me, Monday through Wednesday, I was obsessed with disappointing people. The amount of times that my mind spun in that over and over was unbelievable. And I sat with the Lord and I was like, but how is that an idol? And what I felt him invite me into realizing is an idol, yes, can be a physical structure, but it can be a mindset because my identity, I was seeking identity in wanting to please people and not disappoint them. I'm no longer bowing to the Lord and finding my identity when I'm seeking to please people and not wanting to disappoint them. And immediately I felt the Lord say, what do I have to say? Am I disappointed in you? So I want us to go there this morning. We only have a few minutes left and then we're going to go into worship with some unbelievable worship songs. But I don't know that we've all understood idols fully. Because I think it really is easy to think that it's something out there or, you know what, yeah, I might might watch a lot of football. Or I really might like video games a lot. But what about those little things in our head that cause us anxiety depression, or wanting to change who we are just so people like us, or anger, or whatever that might be, but asking the Lord to show us those things, because the truth is, they have become idols for us, and we have looked for identity in that, and we've looked for approval and understanding. So in a second, This has been the big question. What is this? I had a lot of people ask me, even my own family, what are you doing with that? So this is our invitation to come forward after we spend a little bit of time asking the Lord to reveal and examine us 
And the thing I like about this board in particular is that it's clear. Because I think the enemy is quick to say, well, if you just keep this hidden and we can work, like, and then he makes his voice sound like God and be like, we can work this out, just you and I. But the Bible says that when we bring things into the light, it loses power. And so I love that it's clear because the light actually reflects, and this is a safe space. So us writing something down, eventually the whole board's filled up and no one knows whose handwriting is what. My handwriting's horrible. No one will know who it is or what it possibly even says. And even if they do, it's in the light. It doesn't matter, right? Like ultimately it loses its power because it's brought into the light and we want our idols to be revealed, the true nature of them, in light of the light of Christ, Because the truth is, in the light of Christ, they are powerless. They have no authority. They mean nothing. And they can't control us. Because Jesus is bigger and better, and his light is more powerful. So that's our invitation today. So I want to lead us into a few moments of just sitting in front of the Lord and asking him to examine us in light of the light of Christ trusting that his nature is good and his kindness leads us into repentance. So will you just hold your hands out and close your eyes with me? And will you take a couple breaths? Inhaling through your nose and exhaling through your mouth. And inhaling through your nose and exhaling through your mouth. In the book of Ephesians, it says, don't waste your time on useless things the barren pursuits of darkness. Expose those things for the sham they are. It's a scandal when people waste their lives on things they must do in darkness where no one else will see. Rip the cover off those frauds and see how attractive they look in the light of Christ. Wake up from your sleep. Climb out of your coffins. Christ will show you the light. So, Father, we invite you into these next few moments. And we ask you to draw near and examine us. We ask you to show us the places and the things that have received more attention than you. That we have unintentionally made idols. Father, we thank you that your heart is for us. And so come, Lord Jesus.
come make yourself known. Thank you, Lord, that you know us. And you care deeply about us. And you know what's best for us. Father, continue to minister to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As worship starts, you're invited to come as a confession. Write something. Maybe just one thing. But trusting that the light of Christ, although may feel vulnerable, brings great healing and great love.